this is Minda Wilson with Urgent Care. I have my good friend on the show today, Dr. Mary Lee Esty. She is head of the Brain Wellness and Biofeedback Center and just uh, an all-around fabulous and interesting person. I'm so excited to talk to her. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. So a lot's going on with COVID-19 and social distancing, and you're, you're right in the center of it. How do you think this is going to play out? Well, uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> There's not an awful lot. The things that you're being advised to do, and I think most of them make a lot of sense, especially wearing a mask, although a mask is not perfect, but it certainly beats... Uh, anything else that's widely available. But I think what makes it so frustrating, it doesn't feel like you're doing something. To do nothing is doing something, and staying home can begin to feel like nothing, but it's really very protective of of everyone. And I guess uh, that's about the best we can do. I'm, I'm concerned about the, quote, opening up of some places, and the last data I saw, I think it was preliminary, but was that states that had done that and really had opened oh, places like barber and beauty shops where people can't social distance. I, I, I guess the number of cases is going up, and of course it's tempting to go out into the beach and be in the sun, but people didn't seem to be staying very far apart. So I guess we just wait and see what happens. Uh, we closed down um, our, my practice about eight weeks ago, and we're working on various ways we can create a safe environment for everyone, for us and for every client. And we're going to be opening at some point. I don't know exactly when at this, at this time. It will be a few weeks. Right, but people people that have uh, you know brain injuries and brain and 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 mental health issues, which is the population you primarily treat. I mean, they isolation it can be hard on them. So well, you know, it can cut both ways. Uh, some people just don't want to be around other people at all. It's mm-hmm. too demanding. It's uh, they can't process uh, a conversation, you know, even with one person, let alone a group, quickly, and it becomes too demanding. And then yeah, there's, there's a personality type, too, that gets involved. I, I, there are no easy answers. Mm-hmm. But we're going to set very, very careful and clear guidelines to protect us in the office. Because if we're not there, we can't treat anybody. And then we want everyone who comes in to be safe. So it's, it's, it's going to be very, very different. And most of the health, of any kind of health guideline that I have seen is no people in the waiting room. You stay in your car until you get a call from us, and there's one at a time. And then you treat a lot of people with PTSD. Well, the, the concussion, traumatic brain injury, and PTSD just go together. 
2009, in the Journal of uh, New England Journal of Medicine, Colonel Hogue at Walter Reed published a study of over 2,000 vets that they tested, evaluated very carefully at Walter Reed. The purpose being to figure out how to distinguish diagnostically between um, traumatic brain injury symptoms as a diagnosis and post-traumatic stress. And the conclusion was you can't. And if you think about it, post-traumatic stress can stem from any kind of um, episode, usually unfortunate, of course, uh, where your life is probably threatened, or at least there's a big danger of that. But most of those kind of episodes also involve violence, especially where you're talking about domestic abuse, um, parental abuse. And in the, in the uh, in combat situation, an explosion goes off next to you. You know people are shooting at you. You know, which one is the TBI when the rock hits you in the head or something while you were being shot at? So that is the conclusion, and it, and it makes sense. So, so given that they both have similar symptoms, is, is the treatment the same for both of them? Well, it depends on what kind of treatments we're talking about. Uh, <clears throat> generally speaking, the treatment I do is there are a variety of kinds of neurofeedback, you know, brain wave biofeedback. And uh, all are effective to various degrees and efficiency. But it's uh, certainly, in my opinion, certainly uh, preferable to being loaded up with a lot of medication, which is the easy thing especially for docs to do when they've got an overwhelming number of patients as they do in the military. But our record so far, and I first started the first study with Iraq-Afghanistan veterans was started in 09. My goodness, that's 11 years ago, isn't it? Um, And some of those people were on a huge number of medications, and their docs took them off. They just didn't need it anymore. That doesn't always happen. It's not my goal in treatment. My goal is just to try to make people's lives easier. So we keep doing it, and but it, it is to me there is no argument to be had to say that well this person has traumatic brain injury or post concussion symptoms, but the other stuff is is not post-traumatic stress because they can't go together. Well, they, they just do. They're twins, non-identical twins. So people who are suffering from these things, they've been, uh, they're under pressure from being locked down. They can't control their, they have moments when they can't control their emotions when something triggers them. So do you feel like because of the current situation we're in with, would something like, uh, what happened to George Floyd be a trigger to these to people and make make it harder for them? Well, uh, interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But the first thing that comes to mind is when we are confined. You know, it's it's being being uh, locked down or self isolating. 
is not the same as being what tied up, but it can begin to feel like it. Mm-hmm. Like there are these restraints, can't see them. And then there's the fear underneath all of that. You really don't want to go out there and get sick, but you can't see the you can't see the enemy. And I think you know some young folks, and we've seen them, just think. And I can remember thinking, I'm not going to let that happen to me when I get older. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and the, the feeling that you're invincible just because you want to be. And I, I, you know, I hope people don't get sick, but yeah, I, our record so far is not not sterling on that point. Uh, as people begin saying, I have to get out, I just need to get out, I want to get out, and I was talking to two or three people as mentioned this too, I suddenly, I, what I thought of was Anne Frank probably wanted to get out of that attic and take a walk, but she could see the danger. We can't see the danger. Right. And that adds, I think, an enormous stress. I mean, I've got a routine I go through. As I get to the front door, I've got to make sure I've got the mask, I've got the gloves, I've got this, you know, and I've got everything with me so that I don't have to come back in and out and in and out. And it's time-consuming, and I don't like it. Right. But I also don't want to end up... You know, almost unable to breathe. You don't want to sick. And, and, and you know, actually, actually, that that brings us back to George, doesn't it? Yes. I can't breathe. One thing, my my daughter and, and son-in-law are physicians, and one day, um, my daughter said, "Why aren't we seeing the bodies?" Somehow I wonder if, if a collective mind kind of thinks, well, people just kind of go to sleep. That is not a peaceful death. Right, right, right. So you're thinking it could be a trigger for these people. It could be a trigger oh, yes. for someone. Yes, well, and there was the, the uh, expectation and about uh, how, especially with the lockdown, uh, domestic violence cases were going to go up. And I, I think there was some indication of that in New York. It certainly didn't make headlines, but um, it, it's probably inevitable given the extra stress and, you know, not much space to move around in. So if there right. were already stressors there, undoubtedly. And, and many of the uh, veterans I've treated have 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 talked about that, how they, they're just, they get stressed at their own behavior because there is this hair trigger that comes, uh, and it's a physical, uh, um, product of the damage that concussion can do. And a concussion and TBI are, are, you can't separate them. A concussion is the first, event it's the acceleration deceleration being hit or um, you know slammed around whether it's by an explosion or a fall that actually damages does a little damage to a circuit that goes from the frontal part of the brain down into the limbic the old brain and back up and when it gets damaged that's when we lose the that split second to decide, am I going to let this person have it 
or yeah, maybe I'll be diplomatic this time. It's a split second. You don't really think, but the decision is made. But when that gets damaged, it's zero to 60. And that's the way I always describe this. I ask people, well, do you go from zero to 60 in a split second? And yeah, but that can go away with treatment, with good treatment. Mm. And it does something to restore the brakes. So it's like stepping on the, you want to step on the brake, but there's no fluid. And, mm. you know, you, you just go and do something that you wish you hadn't done. And people describe seeing themselves, losing it, and just kind of watching and thinking to themselves, why am I doing this? But they can't stop. Mm. And I am, I'm just dying to get back to treat people because this is one of the things that virtually always goes away. I can't say 100%, but the data are good. So and the that's, ability one, to... that's one of the uh, the uh, triggering triggering uh, activities, so behaviors. Right. So self-control, the ability to regain self-control over time mm-hmm. is something that people suffering from post-traumatic stress or brain injuries can regain. Yes. Yes. And and, and then there's a, there's a lot of data about. Um, in fact, I was just asked to put a bunch together. Um, one study I know was in uh, in the uh, uh, adolescent incarceration facilities in New York State, mm-hmm. and doing surveys. Of course, they have histories on people. Brain injury is just a major part of it, and malnutrition is part of brain injury. And all of our veterans need to think about that. Because loss of appetite, loss of sense of smell and taste. Now that's their, you know, that's one of the early signs of COVID, I guess. But that is also almost a given after enough concussions. Hmm. That just doesn't work. I there was one Marine. He was so funny. He, uh, we actually have that question on on our history uh, form. And he said, oh, well, my sense of taste is great. He says, I love all that hot stuff. And he was bragging about how he'd get the hottest sauce there was in any restaurant or at home and just smother his food with it. One day I came in and uh, he came in and I asked him about that. And it was on a list of uh, behaviors and symptoms that he had written down. And he said, oh, he said, we went to some place and I put on all my sauce. I took one bite and spit everything out because his sense of taste came back. Oh, no. So <laughs> he wasn't going to be using the hot, hot sauce anymore. <laughs> so what does treatment look like? When you, when you have a biofeedback treatment, what, what is that? What does it look like for a patient? Well, let's talk about brainwave biofeedback. Uh, There are a lot of different kinds of systems, but all of them in some way or other involve putting uh, an electrode, a little sensor. It's all painless on the scalp, and the equipment is either going to be reading, just reading the brainwave pattern of that individual. And they, in the traditional kind, they watch a screen, which is giving them some representation of how their brain is firing. And there's always um, uh, an unequal distribution 
of energy over the whole scalp when people are having symptoms. It's, it's like having, <laughs> one way I describe it when we look at a brain map for somebody is, you know, it's like a, a take an ice hockey team. Uh, mm. You've got, I don't know, what are there, six players on a hockey team, I guess, something like that. So you've got some of your players are in the penalty box. Mm-hmm. But the other team, you know, real life, the world has all their players. That makes it really tough on your team. Because mm-hmm. you haven't got all your resources. You haven't got all that brain power. You haven't got the skills. They're sitting in the box. Mm-hmm. So you've got three or four players on the ice, and it's called a game. But, boy, is that tough on that team because the other team's got all its all of its resources. So concussion, traumatic brain injury, whatever you want to call it, it's a matter of degree, really. But neither has been really defined. In fact, CDC just last year, I think, added a category. They're calling it subconcussion. And that's just, let's say you, you get, um, you fall, and you're just kind of slightly shaken up a little bit. And in maybe a minute, you're kind of okay. Uh, but you're not. The brain doesn't really go back to its prior state. Hmm. But when you as the person with concussion wanting to get better, you look at that screen and you see something that represents the way your brain is working. The therapist is looking at a different screen. So think of it like a high jump bar. Mm-hmm. The therapist is setting a a minimum distance, let's say, a minimum criteria. And as you watch that screen, a typical one now is to pick a movie to watch. And you want to see the movie. And the movie's going. And then pretty soon it starts to gray out and it's going to go away. And you, you don't want that to happen. And you kind of somehow start concentrating more and the movie comes back on. Well, you have changed the energy in your own brain, the energy distribution. So the therapist can get, they're getting all kinds of data. Hmm. And they can raise that high jump bar a little bit. Hey, hey, you learned something. Okay, we're going to make it a little bit harder. And through repetition, that actually then can begin to carry over. And a neuro... um, famous neurosurgeon back in the 90s was telling me that uh, he said the only way he could explain the fast changes he saw in my neurofeedback clients, he says it has to be producing two things. One is it's changing the neurotransmitter uh, settings in the brain so that now you've got, you're getting them back. So now you've got more function. Hmm. And but is, is it waves? That it's, that, it's, that it's helping the brain is going to start growing back connections that were broken. So do you apply, uh, would you apply electronic signals to the brain? I mean, what makes it change? Well, it depends on what kind of equipment you're using. There are some systems that do that. Mine was one of the early ones, and it's, really considered antiquated now, but it works so well, I just keep using it. Uh, so there are other varieties now. 
that do that. And in that one, the person just sits. They're not, they're not watching the screen. They're not trying to learn to teach their brain how to do something. But it's also possible, and we've done this in my office a lot, to combine both kinds to speed things, it seemed to speed up treatment for um, attention deficit. And by the way, attention deficit and all of its varieties of uh, diagnostic codes is, I think, pretty much accepted now to be the result of early childhood concussion. Mm. Uh, About 15 years ago, I was on a brain injury program with Dr. Don Freeman from Hopkins. He was a pediatric neurologist. And he was talking about that, <clears throat> and he said, when a child is brought to us, and the question is why the learning problems, why, you know, whatever they might be, but he was talking specifically about learning issues and school issues. He said, we know now we have to ask a lot of questions about early childhood accidents, falls, you know, out of the crib, maybe uh, difficulties at birth. He said, anything, you know, Johnny falls down through the, falls off the monkey bars. Anything before age six, maybe six and earlier, they will be diagnosed with ADD by the time they get to third or fourth grade. Really? That's interesting. So I began, well, but you look at the, um, what was then, the the DSM-4 criteria for diagnosis of ADD or ADHD and concussion, which these are no longer, concussion is not even in the DSM-5. They're virtually identical. So it's been very, very interesting over the past decade asking parents, well, what about, uh, you know, did did your child, you know, did you suddenly realize they could climb out of the crib because you heard them fall or they rolled off the bed when they were infants? I mean, there can be all kinds of things. You can, you know, an infant in the car when it gets rear-ended, they're protected somewhat, but, you know, there's still a lot of acceleration back and forth. Mm-hmm. And it, it's been really interesting. Um, there was a, one case of twins. There were fraternal twins, and the girl was just fine, and the boy was a young teenager, just was hyperactive and couldn't focus, and it was absolutely typical of uh, ADHD presentation and, and in school, too. And I, I kept asking the parents about, you know, what about early childhood stuff? Oh, no, no, he was always fine, always fine. And he was getting a map done, and when he came in, and the map really looked like uh, he'd had some kind of blow. And I asked him, and he kind of thought a little bit, and then I noticed he had a big scar on his forehead, right right at the hairline. It was pretty big. I said, well, what, what, what caused that? He said, oh, that was the bike accident. And both of his parents gasped. Oh, we forgot about that one. <laughs> and he's had a pretty bad one. Wow. But the, the really encouraging thing, to, what I want people to understand is that can change. Neurofeedback goes back, it's early, early research days to the 70s. And there's a lot that's been learned. There are a lot of providers out there 
And a child does not have to live with this the rest of their life. It so, really can be changed. So all these kids that are put on drugs, you know, for ADHD oh dear, or whatever. <laughs> so, so I want to get you going. So what can, what should be, what should we do about that? Get a good neurofeedback therapist. <laughs> so, so it's unnecessary. Does it cause permanent damage? Is it something that by, by it you mean you mean the drugs? Yeah. Well, maybe not so much now. Back in 1996 or seven, there was a um, family that came from Indiana in the summer. There were two boys. Uh, struggling with attention problems in school, really serious, nice kids, and they were not troublemakers at all. And um, I, I, you know, I wish I'd known things back then that I know now, but I had a, a, a wonderful neuropsychologist uh, in this area, Angela Boy, a very experienced guy. I had him test them, and they had both been on Ritalin for quite some time mm. and he he tested them and then he said did you look at their hands and I well uh, no I hadn't looked at their hands and he said well just take a look at how short their fingers are and how broad the palm of the hand is mm. so, and those were side effects I didn't believe it but back then as the PDR you know, the desk reference for medications was like a huge telephone book. In fact, I just threw one away. It was about three inches thick, tiny print. So I read almost two whole pages of this fine print on Ritalin, and that was listed as one of the side effects if children started on it early. Now, they don't do that anymore, fortunately. Mm. But both of these boys have that very short fingers, and it's just appalling. Um, I think almost every medication has some kind of side effects, but I urge people, you know, if it's recommended for your child, do a lot of reading about potential side effects. There was one boy I didn't treat very much. It was the summertime, and I think he was about third grade, fourth grade, and with just one or two doses of, and I don't remember which one, but one of the, uh, this was about six, seven years ago, um, he developed a terrible tick that was really quite dangerous. Oh, and his pediatrician just couldn't believe that the medication would cause that, but they, of course, stopped it, and, and the, uh, the tick went away. But it's it's in it's in the literature, and, and computers make it a lot easier now to find out. So if you have any question, really start looking. And sometimes so, you need to add age, what the age range is that you're looking for. And and how does puberty affect these things like ADD and ADHD? How does it change? <laughs> well, if I asked you that question, what would you say? I don't know because if, if puberty if, in general makes everything more difficult. So. Right, but, but I don't just, think there's anything specific. Is it just you know? Is it 
does it make if you've had a brain injury does the cha hormonal changes make that injury worse oh, yes. and therefore oh, yes. <clears throat> it makes everything worse well it can affect things one of the questions on our and our history form has grown up over the years by expanded by experience is do you tend to feel colder or warmer than other people in the same you know room same temperature hmm. and it was very interesting in the beginning uh, the veterans you know coming back from Iraq Afghanistan would say oh I, oh I always I always feel colder now because it was so hot over there no 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 what happens is you'd have to, I can't show you the cross section of the brain but the pituitary gland hangs down beneath the the um, you know the sort of the corpus of the brain it goes has a stalk that goes through a little hole into the skull bone and it shapes like a Turkish saddle and in fact that part of the bone is called the Turkish saddle so when there's an impact a fall an explosion um, whiplash you name it the brain is bouncing back and forth in in the fluid that, that tries you know kind of protects it a bit from the bony sharp things inside the skull mm -hmm. but the pituitary can't move so that mm -hmm. stalk that goes through the skull bone up into the area of the brain that controls body temperature thirst um, appetite I think there's something else uh, that stalk gets damaged hmm. so the the cooperative signals between the hypothalamus and pituitary is messed up what happens body temperature thyroid does not get regulated the way it should hmm. and I think it, it was the the huge number of vets coming back who were having this it's called dysautonomia um, you know, the military docs were seeing this in huge numbers. Hmm. And we're just, I have been, I think I've been able to find only one person in the D.C. area who would actually take this seriously and do a lot of testing for it. He's with Hopkins. Hmm. Um, but the military docs, it's tough to treat. Endocrine things are difficult to treat, but they can be. But one thing that has happened I, I don't have data on it from the hundred and some vets I've treated. Uh, often that body temperature normalizes, their appetite normalizes, sense of taste comes back, hmm. but not with everybody. It obviously depends on how much damage was done. And if the force is big enough, strong enough, the pituitary can actually be kind of pulled up through that little hole and get squashed between the skull and the brain. And that's called acella um, something. So yeah, wow. hormones are huge, huge, and you know, and it's it's really tough on guys, especially who don't want to have something, anything wrong with them. You know? Right. I mean, we don't in general, but they're used to being, you know, in charge of everything. Right. Oh, but this amazing. also goes into one of the major things that they deal with, the reactivity, hormone levels, the hair trigger um, uh, 
response, you know, maybe to a word or an action or something, all of which comes back to the jobs, the brain's first, most, and basic job, which is to keep us alive. Mm -hmm. So parts of the brain through trauma experiences become super sensitive to that one task, keep me alive. So it can be a smell and there is no, you know, it's that zero to 60 thing. The brain is not going to see anything at at that stage as gray. It's either white or black, safe or not. So X happens and they strike out, they yell, they, they do something that's immediately protective and they can't stop it because the brain is not going to let up because otherwise you might die. Hmm. This can even go, it's even known now, it can be demonstrated, well, unfortunately, uh, that an infant in the crib, if there's violence nearby, totally freezes. They don't know what's going on. But that tiny part of the brain knows. So don't move. Wow. So those trauma experiences can go way, 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 way back. Wow. And so if they've and had course, that trauma we, experience, can they go, grow out of it, or is it just... Well, um, certainly with with the proper treatment, they can. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had uh, <laughs> a lot of really interesting things. In, in the concussion book, there's a bunch of the stories with the vets. Of, you know, one of them is... Um, Gosh, she was in the uh, 2000, the very first study that was published in 2009. Uh, actually, I started that in 2007. Um, she would not leave her quarters over at Walter Reed. She had been stopped from doing, you know, self-damage uh, over there and was finally put into private quarters at Walter Reed out in the hospital, but she couldn't tolerate being out of her room. She just couldn't. It was just too frightening. Hmm. And I think it was, this, I don't know, three or four treatments. She walked down Georgia Avenue, which is a very busy street here, all the way to Silver Spring to a coffee shop. Wow. At what was then Borders Bookstore. And then I think soon after that, realized she was sitting with her back to a window, which you do not do (laughs) if you're a veteran. So I see the, it's it's overly simplistic, but it works, I think. Mm -hmm. I see the brain's number one job, keep keep me alive. Mm -hmm. Under that comes... I think a functional fusion of of mechanisms of action between two parts of the brain that have to do with memory. There's the amygdala and the hippocampus. Now, I don't think they physically grow together, but they both react. And one example, to the tiniest things, um, You've probably had an experience where you were sitting quietly, maybe reading or something, and suddenly it's like you're 
system just kind of comes awake and startles because there's this tiny, 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 tiny feeling going down maybe your neck or your arm, and you look down and maybe there's an ant. Mm. But your whole system lights up and says, problem, do something quick. Now, that's normal circumstance. Right. So you don't leap up and maybe grab your knife and go after something, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that is the simplicity. So mm. the more complex, and I'm thinking of a Marine who sort of gave in and went to a restaurant one night. We, we had just started treatment with his family. He was able to sit with his back to a wall where he could see the door and the rear exits and, you know, make the plan to run if needed. Mm-hmm. And they had dinner. And then he reported that he was standing outside talking to a stranger, which he would never usually do. Mm-hmm. And it didn't scare him. Wow. He just suddenly realized, I, I just talked to this guy, and I never—I don't know him. Why would I talk to him? That's so amazing. The brain, you know, the brain begins to learn. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you know, not everything's dangerous anymore. So it's going from black and white to shades of gray. I see. So you're going from thinking, feeling threatened all the time to under, having some awareness built that maybe you're not in flight or fright yeah. mode. Yeah, so probably t- totally unconscious. It's aware of everything around you. and um, Not necessarily fight and flight, but just being on guard. I see. Just evaluating constantly. It takes a lot of energy. And that brings me, now, now that you mention it, to malnutrition. So you get some brain damage, you know, some structures that are kind of messed up a bit, so you don't have a good appetite anymore. And especially if you can't taste the food, you know, who wants to eat? It's just stuff. Right. But the brain is like a furnace. It burns an enormous amount of energy. It's the only way it can operate well, and it's the only way it can heal itself. It's got to have building blocks. Very important to be eating good quality food, especially pro, well, just the right variety of things. But um, uh, 30 grams of protein, let's see, what did I read? The brain requires enough protein that's, um, I think it's 30 grams, you know, for an adult, 30 grams a day, which is 20 times more than three pounds of muscle uses in calories. Mm. Wow. But it, it doesn't have to be all at once. You just you, you should have sixty grams minimum. You know, a, a big guy would have sixty. Mm. But just it's just you know you can't build a house if you don't have um, I don't know building blocks, uh, cement blocks or something. You've got to have them. The brain will grow back. That neurosurgeon told me uh, we were talking about a stroke patient. I was reading that. The brain will regrow new connections. And he thought that neurofeedback speeds up that process. Wow. Interesting. So if people want to learn more about your process 
and what you do and how they can be treated in a non-drug way. How do people reach out to you? Well, there are two organizations that are uh, natural and the international now. Uh, the initials are these. <clears throat> and one is I, and then S like Sam, N like Nevada, R, dot org, International Society for Neuronal Regulation. And the other one is A, and another A, and a P like Peter, and a B like boy. Mm-hmm. And that's the uh, Professional Biofeedback Organization. And they list members from all over the country, all over the world. So you can go on their websites. They, they tend to be you know, overlap quite a bit. But nevertheless, they are different from each other. Um, and you can search by state, by zip code, by country. Europe is very, very active in uh, neurofeedback, especially in biofeedback. Well, they all grew out of biofeedback. Mm-hmm. And so, and and how would they reach out to your clinic, to your and or get your book about concussions? Uh, the book is um, the website is conqueringconcussion.net right now. Mm-hmm. The the one dot com is being changed, and it's on it's on Amazon. Kindle. I think that there are a lot of illustrations. It was written uh, carefully as we could to be reasonably accessible to people suffering from brain injury and concussion who have a lot of trouble reading. So there are a lot of illustrations and not all Kindles will handle, you know, drawings and tables and things like that. Uh, But Amazon.com has it. And what's the name of it again? It's Conquering Concussion. So the full title is Healing TBI Symptoms with Neurofeedback and Without Drugs. And we we have a program still going. Uh, uh, Veterans, uh, any, any military folks who are dealing with this kind of thing should call and it's uh, just call the office, and uh, we have a special program for uh, military. And I've even treated you know, some Korean War veterans, certainly Vietnam vets. And we have a not-for-profit that attempts to fund the treatment um, it's kind of hard to do, but I don't turn people away. Wow. So, um, all right. So um, I I wanted to circle back a little bit and ask you a couple more questions. Are, is, sure. are you okay with that? Or do you have the time? I'm sure. Okay. I may not have answers, but uh, <laughs> I just I just didn't want to. I realized that I kept you longer than we promised, so I didn't want to. You know, if you were if you had to go somewhere, I didn't want to keep you. So oh, broken promises don't bother me very much. Okay. Oh, good. <laughs> All right. So um, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, what's going on now with uh, you know with policemen and firemen and sort of with how how they're coping with all this stress 
And does that create PTSD and, and, and how, and, and, and then does it create, you know, being under the pressures they are now, especially with. That's a very, very interesting question. Um, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is right on the DC line. And I have, I, I, I haven't kept track. I don't know how many of the first responders in our area I have treated, but um, I think it was two years ago, the, the referring uh, psychologist for Montgomery County Fire and Rescue uh, has referred a lot of people. I think they, in their incoming class, there were 42 OEF, OIF veterans. They are so well trained and have, you know, many of the skills that are needed for those jobs. Mm -hmm. Cosmetics, you know, dealing with all kinds of disaster situations, life and death. And they get a lot of medical training, of course. Um, So one of the problems is that, that can arise and, and people handle these things differently. No one, no individual's life experience is the same as anyone else's. It's just not. Mm-hmm. So for some, there was one who was uh, uh, being in arson is a really tough one. Mm-hmm. And wow. then and then it's, um, you know, they come on a, a car wreck where, you know, people have been burned badly. So it's, it's a kind of combat zone. And we do not really appreciate that as civilians. We think, well, you know, they're home now. Yeah, but they're in another. It's just like being in another room in the same house. Mm-hmm. You know, you're bringing all that past experience with you, and the smell, the sounds, the reactions of the people around you, the the response to the terror, the trauma they have been through, is going to trigger something in you. And when it sometimes gets to be too much, then they get sent to me. Well, not everybody, obviously, but. We just had a wonderful experience recently, and this comes back to nutrition and diet in a, in a way, um, and the endocrine issue. People don't usually think about, I don't know if you know what POTS is, P-O-T-S, it's postural cardia, but people can pass out a lot. Mm. And it's it's very the autonomic nervous system, you know, the automatic response to things that controls blood pressure and blood flow, and is can become quite reactive. Hmm. And this one guy had had to go; he was on leave because he he was close to passing out many times with pots, even if he was just sitting around doing nothing, maybe. A really, really nice guy. He he really wanted to be back to work, and I I think he had eight or ten sessions. His mother came to visit, 
And he wasn't having those episodes anymore. Hmm. And he decided that he really needed to go back to work. So I didn't see him for I haven't seen him for a long time. Uh, not less than a year, but then there's uh, related to one of my colleagues is a woman who's an ER nurse, and she texted <laughs> my colleague to say, "Hey, you know this guy uh, had asked for my uh, my Facebook page, and he just texted me and said, uh, I, I see that you." You, you uh, know Dr. Esty because you've got this uh, information about our, our fundraising dinner, our gala dinner at the Army Annuity Club, which was in November. And she put up some pictures and stuff. And how, how did you get involved with, you know, know about the Brain Wellness uh, Biofeedback Center? So she told him. And he's been working full time. Ever since I saw him, and he never finished. We, we, our typical protocol is 20 sessions, and they're only half-hour sessions. Mm-hmm. And he was back to work and doing great, and he just said, well, say hi. <laughs> 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 I mean, that's what we live for. <laughs> you know? It's just great to know he's back out there and, and just doing great. So, so I, you know, we carry... No matter how hard lives have been, I've seen people just do amazing things. Who've been through all kinds of traumas, you know, maybe even before they went into service. And there's an enormous resilience in people. It's just a matter of, of getting all the horses uh, harnessed up in the same way so that you can move forward. That's a weird analogy, but anyway. Uh, but yeah, you get all your resources so they're working for you and you're not having to fight some of them. So you're saying that the environment that these people serve under, in addition to the military, can also influence issues like PTS oh, sure. or and that Oh yeah, you don't have to be in the military. Yeah. Just grow up in a traumatic household. I've had clients who never knew a day's peace because of often just one family member who scared everybody. And that and that kind of environment really can bring them to a, can, the same kind of symptomatic conditions that sure. you were talking about. Sure. Yeah, the nature of the input uh, yeah, can vary, but they all have things in common. I find that a certain percentage of people who've gone into the military did so because of the trauma growing up. They just didn't know what else to do because this affects learning. It affects the ability to remember, Mm -hmm. to thrive. School can just become really difficult. And you think many of them were diagnosed, actually formally diagnosed with ADHD. Mm -hmm. But in my world, it's because of the traumas they had undergone beforehand. It's amazing in how much we can do and accomplish and contribute to the world against really tough odds. And then when life gets easier, wow. Like, what's going on here? 
So it's when things start to get easier that they that things can sort of blow up, is what you're saying. No, when life gets easier, then it's 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 like being freed, like <clears throat> like the young woman who couldn't walk down, you know, wouldn't leave her quarters. I see. If she couldn't get until she couldn't get somebody to bring her food, and then she finds, hey, you know, I can wow, I can go outside now, and it feels okay. I can walk down the street, and it's all right. So she she goes then she gets discharged. She's decided, in fact, her words to me were, I'm going to go to college now. Huh. Because but, now I can read. But so I'm and just now trying. now she's got a PhD. Wow. But I, I'm just so wondering. So all your resources are available to you now. Mm-hmm. I see. But but that's because she had the treatment. I was just thinking, like, if you're in a, a situation where there's huge violence and then you... Oh. Leave that situation, and you suffer from take it with you. You yeah. suffer. You take it with you until you get the opportunity to be treated, and then right. you you can change your life. But you're still feeling the way you did, even though you might not be in that situation anymore. You know, you might have left your home where there's violence, or you may not be on the streets as a police officer or fireman anymore. But you, right. and t- unless you've had some kind of treatment, you may not. Yeah, something that, that produces a real turning point in life. Mm-hmm. You know, some people get really fortunate. They find the perfect job and people who are supportive and they thrive in that job and they, they build a, a comfortable um, little place for themselves good. Well, I have to say, uh, Dr. Esty, this has been absolutely fascinating. And um, I, I'm so excited about the work you do. And I'm really looking forward to having you back again on our show. And this is Minda Wilson for Urgent Care. <laughs>